I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This week on Routine Checkup, we're joined by David Ridgen, a filmmaker and the creator of CBC's Someone Knows Something. We dive into true crime journalism and its effects on the human psyche. Let's talk about it. Okay, super excited. Uh, Today, we have a guest whose tireless dedication to unraveling mysteries has captured the hearts and minds of listeners across the globe. David Ridgen is a filmmaker and the driving force behind CBC's... Do you guys know this is CBC's first ever true crime podcast? No way, really? Someone Knows Something, uh, which now is currently in its eighth season. Season eight. Wow. Season eight. Huge. Uh, David, first of all, thank you for taking time at your schedule to sit down and chat with us. Um, thank you. And secondly, I guess, you know, that's that's my introduction for you. But I always prefer to give the mic to the person we're sitting with. Why don't you give yourself a nice warm introduction to the three of us and all of our listeners? Who is David Ridgen? <laughs> Start with the easiest question. Uh, <laughs> Who are yeah. you at your core? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that's one of those questions, isn't it? Uh, I have a piece of art next to me that says, the man in the mirror is more distant than he appears. And it's written on a mirror, uh, which kind of (laughs) expresses maybe who I am to myself a bit. But, uh, you know, I fell into uh, what people call true crime investigation about 2000, early 2000s. Sort of, I never sort of thought of myself, oh, I'm going to grow up and be a cold case sort of Mm. uh, guy who, uh, you know, looks into the dark places and shines lights and all those other bromides that you hear. Who uh, does? Who does? Like, who's yeah. the person out there that's like, that's me. That's yeah. what I'm going for. Yeah, it's maybe just some kind of self-torture person. But <laughs> I mean, it, 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 I started off in uh, early days wanting to be sort of a special effects guy in Hollywood. I liked mm-hmm. Alien, the movie, and, you know, Jaws, and that's how old I am, guys. Um, <laughs> and it's I wanted to be the guy making the sort of armatures that would create the you know hold the alien and things like that like that's where i was in like you know elementary school kind of thing and actually part way through high school but somewhere around there i got some kind of journalistic interest um trent writing i became uh, sort of fascinated with the writing process some teacher in high school a teacher in high school managed to convince me that i was good at something and i think that's all you need is a little twist you know a little arm Mm. jolt or twist to kind of let you know that you're actually okay at something and it's sort of you know you start to pull at that thread so mm-hmm. um and it does make a difference when people are positive with you and and give you that kind of a nurturing experience which i don't think you know it comes along all the time so anyway mm. in grade, grade 11 12 i started thinking about journalistic uh, experience and then i started going towards more filmmaking dramatic you know, mm. kind of things. So uh, eventually, you know, it turned out that uh, journalism 
was kind of the area I went to, although I've never called myself a journalist, never been, I've never been formally trained in that uh, sort of a milieu, more like a filmmaker. Uh, that's where I went. I went to film school, um, which who knows if you have to do that or not, uh, to become a filmmaker and did a drama, writing plays, things like that. Mm. So I came from a sort of an artistic environment, documentary creator kind of environment, and was hired into CBC with that. Uh, I'd actually been to Israel, Palestine, and done one of my first major documentaries was there about the Palestinian refugee issue in Lebanon, where I lived yeah. for a while. Wow. And that won an award, Canadian Association of Journalism Award, that kind of allowed me to apply to the CBC job, which I eventually got. And then from there, worked at CBC Sunday, where I kind of created the situation where I did what I wanted in terms of documentary creation and worked on short form things fell into the investigative area on cbc uh, sunday which is the name of the show um uh, working in the, on in mississippi so the mississippi case which was arguably one of the cases that people know the best that i've worked on uh based on clan murders and uh, of two african americans um and conviction based on the work uh that's where i learned how to you know, how to start learning how to work with families and how to kind of start creating the kind of architecture that you hear and see in, in the investigative stuff afterwards, certainly here at NSKS. And before that, I was doing mm -hmm. a documentary for CBC as well. Whoa. David, speaking and, of like, speaking of the, those, those like relationships with those families that you made and coming back to something you, you said earlier about, you know, like discovering writing in, in like, you know, junior high, high school, um, I'm curious because like when I think of, of like the craft of writing, it's like a very, um, like personal and individual thing. Like you sit down on, you know, probably on your own in a lot of cases and are, you know, just you and either the pen and paper or, or the screen that you're writing, writing on. And, and like, you can create this sort of, whether it's, you know, creative writing or a piece of, of, um, uh, journalism like you're creating this thing on your own, but also the stories that you're telling, if you're telling stories about people, you have to like foster and create these relationships to like sort of get to the heart of what is, you know, could be a very individual um, thing, I guess. And so like, I'm trying to balance this idea in my head of like, you know, something that like maybe seems like more geared towards like an introverted person in the sense of like the actual writing process itself but like something that has come across in like a, as a fan of someone knows something and listening to the the work that you've done there is those relationships that you're building during those story the storytelling process and like how do you, like how do you think about those two different things and what is your relationship with building the actual relationships with people like <laughs> you like the long form questions to get to sort <laughs> it's actually not that difficult. So writing, yeah, it is introverted. It's very uh, personal. It's something that you use to deal with uh, personal equations that you've got or built in your life. And you try to confront these things through writing, I think. You try to confront uh, problems you may have faced or uh, losses you may have faced. I've certainly uh, dealt with a lot of the things that, uh, that I've faced in my life in the early days, anyways, through that early writing. And I think it's a, just a process of confrontation with yourself to some extent. So I and I, mm. I see the, a similarity in the work uh, that I do with family members too, because really, 
uh, sort of a confrontation with the facts of the case is kind of is kind of like confronting yourself too, because you have to learn to accept these things and coming to an acceptance uh, of cases or or loss uh, and the hurt is is the is the big deal with SKS. It's not just getting into a courtroom or trying to you know hear the gavel smash down and all, everything's okay. Let's go home, you know. Uh, it's really about con- sort of facilitating the journey with the family member, members or friends, and allowing them the space for the first time to sort of accept the situation, because often it's unacceptance or fighting against it, which creates the nut that's hard to crack mm-hmm. in, in, in those places in the mind, right? So so it's really just a simple throw the guy in the elevator who's afraid of elevators process. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's kind of like ripping the Band-Aid off to make it heal better. I say sometimes it's pretty overused, but it's pretty similar uh, situation. So I see the personal of writing and, and the personal processes at SKS very similarly. Right. That, yeah, that, I, that, 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 is like I like that that analogy of like throwing the person in the in the elevator like it's it's a it's like an exposure therapy sort of yeah um situation but at the same time like you being you like you kind of like are the elevator in that um and and that's a that's a skill uh to be able to bring that stuff forward um mm. to ask those questions and to to create a space that somebody feels comfortable, maybe not immediately, but hopefully eventually to accept and to be able to talk about openly these things that are undoubtedly very tough and challenging. Um, um, you know, is that a, is that a skill that you ever consciously thought about fostering or is it something that is more natural or just something that when you put yourself into that situation, you know, it's, that's your exposure therapy. Like you're just learning as you, you, as you go. To. Yeah. 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 People ask me all the time, how do you get people to say those things to you? Like you're, you knock on the door of somebody who you've never met and who you think is a killer or as a perpetrator. And they're suddenly you're eating breakfast with them five minutes later and petting their dog. And I often wonder myself how, you know, why do people tell me things and why, why is it when I talk to people that sometimes, you know, the people that you're going up to confront often, sit you down and start talking. It's because I think space is never, these are people that have never felt they've had space to, to, to actually say what they wanted to say, whether they're guilty of something or not. Often they're guilty of something else that they don't want me to know about. And sometimes that is what, <laughs> yeah. that's what makes them not want to talk to me is because there's some <laughs> yeah. other thing they did, right. nothing to do with the case. Right? Right, right. So, but yeah, I don't know. It's not a conscious thing. I think if you, if I thought about it, like, you know, Ooh, now I'm going to make them talk to me by slouching a certain way, or I'm going to look <laughs> funny, or I'm going to have my eyes in a, in the right, uh, you know, looking to the right instead of the left or, you know, it's often, it's not mm. in the eyes, actually, it's in the hands guys. That's what tells if you're lying or not, by the way. Um, <laughs> oh, so, oh. so I don't know. I don't, I don't really think about it. Uh, <laughs> and I just think that there's something in the demeanor and the manner um i did in early days i invested in a process called dave's honesty hour and there were two daves myself and one of my good friends whose name was dave we were known at parties to generally as the evening wore on and let's say people were more Mm loose-lipped uh we would gather everybody in a dark room and sit them in a circle and we would do this thing called Dave's Honesty Hour, and everybody would we go around the circle, and people would tell these things about themselves or experiences they'd had that they'd never, 
ever would say anywhere, but in Hell this, yes, dude. In this sphere of that. influence. Yeah. I love that. Group and therapy. people that to this day from my <laughs> age group in high school that yeah. were part of that will be able to talk about that. Um, and people were talking about some horrible stuff. It yeah. wasn't just, I don't like rock candy. You know, it was, yeah. I, this happened to me. Things I smoke like rock that. candy. Yeah, yeah. Right. I smoke rock. I would like to smoke your rock yeah. candy. Whatever. And it's it, it's yeah. just it's amazing when you give people that opportunity yeah. to emote in a safe place. It seems safe. I mean, we're all hammered, right? But it mm-hmm. seems safe. I mean, I let's just say not all of us were hammered, but it 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 it's amazing what people will do and Ooh. say. You know, like there's I think there's a feeling sometimes that there's a private party out there where everybody's talking. And I've never been allowed to do so, you know, yeah, and yeah. we see that actually across a lot of this political back and it, forth that's going on too. Right. It, so I, I, I mean, it, there's something I, I, I'm sure you get you, this is, these are the types of questions that you, you, you probably um, are used to having to answer all the time, but there is something extraordinarily fascinating about, you know, whether it's watching or listening to an individual who has that knack to get themselves into, into situations that, sort of like raise the hair on the back of most people's neck. It, I think of like Louis Thoreau, who's like, who, who has this incredible ability to put himself in positions of speaking with people who at most times aren't interested in speaking to anybody. And he just has this way of disarming them and has this way of pulling things out of them that is just like it's, being charming and non-judgmental. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and it's, it's it, a, it, it, it makes I'm fascinated by watching that because I'm going, there's no fucking way I could ever do that. I don't think. Um, so it, I, in, in saying that I'm, I'm curious, David, like, do you have, you know, as someone who don't, who doesn't consider himself a journalist, but like, really you, you are, you, you are, you know, at the core of what you're doing, it is journalism. Do you have, do you have people that you've looked up to or, or even like mentors, um, you know, like who inspires you to do the work that you do, um, or is, or, or do you, or do you even look at it that way? Like, do you have people that you look up to like, like a Louis Thoreau or something like that? Can I, I honestly, and, and people, I mean, it's like, what, what do you podcast do you recommend? What do you listen to? And like, I'm sorry, I don't listen to podcasts. I don't have time. I say, and it's like, who is this idiot? Um, <laughs> I, I don't, I can't think of a lot of people, uh, Michael Moore, possibly whom I've actually sure. met and who knows my work, uh, uh, just because of the way he operated back in Roger and Me days and the documentary days, mm-hmm. uh, lots of doc makers from you know early NFB and the sort of Cinema Direct and mm-hmm. documenting Alan King and 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 people who were willing to do long form observation, fly on the wall, long form, not going away journalism, not going away document documenting, right? Like mm. it, it news of the week is not me. I'm I'm like a lifetimer, you know, which is much to my detriment because I'm hauling you know, 17 families along with me here. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I admire uh, people that uh, are invest themselves fully in the process. I mean, I'm taking my family into this too, right? Cause they're, you can hear them in the podcast. Um, and it's just, it's just part of the holistic, it's a holistic thing. Like I, I think that people will detect that too. People understand that this guy's really into it. This guy is a true believer and there's something not messianic about that. Like I'm not trying to be a Knights Templar believer, but I'm, Mm. you know, I'm just like this guy believes in what he's doing. And I think there's something to that. I think that people can detect that when they're talking to you. 
So, so I think that that is that's a, a major factor. Hmm. I'm not even sure I answered your question, but no, no. I mean, you, it's I, I mean, it's great. Like just, just even just to get a, a bit of a a bit of insight into the way that your brain works and the way that you you kind of handle this type of work is 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 sort of what we're we're, we're trying hmm. to get at here, es- especially and you know I kind of I would like to move into specifically like, um, you know, I. I, I enjoy true crime to a certain degree. And, and I, and I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to say this. I enjoy true crime from the same vantage point of, of why I enjoy, um, like, like shitty horror film. Um, I, I like the sensationalized version of it, uh, which is awful. It's awful to say that because David, when I, when I started listening to, uh, to your podcast, I, I almost couldn't, I almost couldn't, I almost couldn't do it because it was too real. It, it like, it started to like, fuck me up. Like my, my, it, my heart was ripped open and I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want to go there. Like I, I want the, like, I want the corny, like, like sort of wild shit that just like, I don't have to, atta- to, to attach myself to, to, to a, to a victim. Like, yeah, na- but yeah. now, now I'm hearing the real side of things and it's like, I, I feel icky. This is hard for me. How the, how the fuck does it have an effect on you? You know what I mean? Like, like you're, you're putting yourself into you, you are, you are, you just said it right yourself. Like you, you are, you are the long, you're, you're, you're in for the long haul. You are going into this fully, fully submerged, submerging yourself into these stories. How, how has that had an effect on you over the last eight seasons of, of someone knows something? Um, how, how do you compartmentalize all of that? It really, I think you should go back earlier than just SKS for all of it, because a lot of the interactions are the same that I've had from documentary days back in 2000, early 2000s. But yeah, um, these are, this is a question I'm often posed. How does it affect you? How are you doing? Like, are you okay? Kind of question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how do, the fuck do you do it? Um, and the answer is varied. Uh, in the early days, early you know, days of doing this kind of thing, um, I would think uh, nothing, nothing is happening to me. What are you talking about? What, <laughs> what? That's a dumb question. Why would I even think about what's happening to me? And then I would find that eight, nine, ten months after everything was over, I'd suddenly be running out of rooms. I'd be running out of meetings. I'd be, I couldn't finish a sentence. Like I would just choke up, and I'd be thinking about a case. Suddenly, I'd see, and I'm going to do it now, probably. But I'd see imagery from a case where I was exposed to crime scene images, for example, a very particular case I'm thinking of right now. And it suddenly comes and it's like, we're talking about uh, a meeting about like, I don't know how are we going to promote the next season or something or, or even, you know, some other thing, like you're in a bar and you're just talking about, I don't know, the birds or whatever. And these kinds of sudden moments would come upon me. And I realized that there was something going on. Um, and it happens, it does happen still. And I do have panic. I have, I have a panic disorder diagnosis, which I've had from early days. So I've learned how to deal with sudden panic attacks, uh, which actually this show helps me with. It helps me to confront those kinds of issues. Uh, it's not something I've spoken about a lot. I have spoken about it a bit in the past. Um, 
the sudden, of course, you know, panic disorder is the sudden kind of onset of fight or flight. You think there's a tiger about to attack you and there's nothing. It's like you're sitting in a dark room looking at a movie or, you know, eating breakfast and suddenly you have to, you know, run or die kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, heart palpitations, hands sweating. So early days I was diagnosed, I was given all these drugs, I never took them. So I basically learned to uh, internalize and deal with it and CBT style how to get rid of it. You know, and each day mm -hmm. I probably have two or three panic attacks. Um, so anyways, that kind of helped. That that situation helped me get through those these kinds of stressful situations. Uh, the heart and the throat sort of running out of the room thing is was different though. This was a different, this was a different beast uh, that I think mm -hmm. comes from exposure to this material. And uh, there has been there have been moments of self medication, uh, drinking. Yeah. I would yeah. say involved in the show, not in the show, but <laughs> in the production of the show, but in the production of myself uh, off mm -hmm. the show. Uh, wouldn't say in anywhere near, you know, alcoholism or anything like that, but there's certainly, you know, self-medication issues that have been dealt with um, mm -hmm. over the years. And to some extent, really, guys, I kind of just keep moving. Like, I, and, and yeah. you know, I don't, I kind of don't let those six month periods crop up. I kind of keep having another thing coming, <laughs> which is maybe there's a piper to be paid, uh, <laughs> right. but, but at least I feel like I've got some tools and, you know, I've got some supportive, I've got family supportive around me. I've got a really supportive uh, group at uh, work and, uh, you know, it's not like everybody in the world doesn't know what I'm doing, right? Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> like everyone hears exactly what's going on in my life. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, David, what's your, um. What's your, this, this, uh, kind of re rewinding a little bit, kind of backing off of the emotional stuff there, but, um, tr like true, the idea of true crime, it, it's like, I know that it's always been around. Like I remember A and E cold case, yeah. cold case files. Like when I was yep. growing up, yeah. like I would watch that shit religiously. Um, sure. and then it seemed like, and, and, and I'm curious about what you're like, how, how you saw true crime evolve over the last like 20 years or so. And especially with the um with podcasting becoming a mm -hmm. popular uh medium uh for telling stories and you know I, I kind of interested in your take on how serial sort of like played into played into all of that like how how have you seen David doesn't listen to podcasts. Serial is right. a podcast. <laughs> I've, listened right. 10, I've listened to about 10 minutes of serial. So. Like, you know, like it, it seems like it seems like true crime in every arena of of media has like really exploded. Exploded. Yeah. And it is a it is something that people that people uh devour. So I'm so I guess I guess to distill that question down is really like, what are your sort of like motivations for um, for, for digging into these things and telling these stories and maybe contrast it against like what you think, why you think people want to devour these stories. Yeah. In terms of being an expert on sort of true crime podcasting and things like that, I really am not. Uh, and cause I, I don't consume them, but I, I do see how they work. I've seen sort of flavor of the week, flavor of the day almost sometimes on some of these uh, cases. And I think, you know, often actually I've seen podcasts basically taking my content and reversioning it into a, you know, that week's podcast. Yeah. Um, and, and then with no intention of contacting the family, even to see if that's okay, or, you know, that they want to hear that all over again, or, you know, that with no intention of following up with police or, 
even engaging with an audience that might actually have the information, right? Just it's more uh, salacious than that. So mm -hmm. I, I've seen that kind of expansion where people are just jumping on to everyone wants true crime. We're going to serve it to you, baby. Um, and Serial was one of the first ones. I mean, I, I was doing this stuff long before Serial came out in a very similar way, except it wasn't in podcast uh, format, which is actually a completely new format. It's not just... You know, early days, people thought you could do a documentary and just make a podcast version of it. Like it's sort of like an add on sort of thing. And then suddenly they realized that it's a completely new medium, like uh, and podcasting really does connect you to the voice, to the host, to the person. People think I'm like their brother. They treat me like I, they know me when they see me on the street. And to some extent, I treat them like I know them because they listen to me. So it's really weird to meet a fan uh, of podcasting. And I never got that when I was a documentarian and, you know, people watched my stuff and it was all over Canada and broadcast around the world. A lot of it, uh, people didn't run up to me and treat me like I was their brother. So there's something I think to, in the neurons that's different about podcasting and the voice in the cans, the voice in your ear, uh, that you hear. So I think it's the physical voice that's connecting people to the story in a different way. Uh, but also the way the story unfolds, uh, similar to sort of a screenplay format, but different because you keep you can be more circular. You don't have to say, have the same kinds of act breaks, um, except for, you know, the commercialized versions of things, which are more and more intruding in the podcast world. People are obviously doing it to make money. Mm -hmm. um, so, so, yeah, there's a bunch of different things at play there. Um, there was an article, I think, in the New York Times that that said that, uh, that that's, there's something zombifying about podcasts, listening to, to people speaking into your ears and something mesmerizing in, in the sort of actual definition of the word about it, totally. that, uh, that, that kind of calms you, uh, but also draws you in. Right. So, mm -hmm. so, and, and often, I don't know how many times I've read, I'd, I'd listen to David read the, you know, phone book, or I'd listen to David, you know, be my GPS or, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know, and that doesn't make me feel great. It's like, yeah, great. I could be saying like the ingredients of Cheerios, uh, or I could be talking about this important case, <laughs> totally, you know, yeah. and either way you're good. Right. Mm -hmm. So it makes you feel like a to, loser in some ways. That, but, uh, anyways. On the, on the calm <laughs> part of that, on the, on the way and the way in which like people feel like it calms people just as a, as like a anecdotal experience. So I, uh, I race road bikes and when I'm out training, I will find I've, I've, I sort of did a little experiment where I thought, what is it like? How do I respond like physiologically with my heart rate and like my ability to like, you know, produce certain efforts for certain periods of time when I'm listening to nothing, when I'm listening to podcasts, when I'm listening to music and when I'm listening to music, my heart rate is a, is at a noticeably lower for like a given effort when I'm listening to podcasts while I train. Huh. Interesting. So you mean you have to work you harder publish when you study, Taylor? No, no, no. <laughs> I mean like I'm, I'm working. That means I'm make, working more efficiently. I'm like staying more calm. I'm staying more calm while I'm training when I'm listening to podcasts. And I found that, I just found that very interesting. I'm, I'm curious, David, like, like podcast aside and like, like the, the sort of commercial and business aspect of like the fact that you have to make a living doing what you're doing. Um, what like what do these cases mean to you? Well, they have to mean everything to me, right? Which is part of the you know the thing that that staples me to them for life. They have to, or else I just won't do them. I mean, I I'm 
only here for a limited time. I don't know about you guys, but I don't have several lives or, and I'm pretty sure there's not another one after this one. So I, I'd like to make sure that I'm doing something that I feel like is, you know, being helpful and uh, being, you know, targeting areas that haven't been targeted before in terms of that. Um, so uh, for me, the casework is everything and the results of it is everything. And the measure is not, as I say, you know, gavel falling always, although I've, you know, I've taken part in cases where at least three or four cases have had uh, courtroom conclusions and jailed conclusions. Um, it's it's more the measure of how the family works through it and the friends and uh, the communities, right? Because these there's these dark darknesses that come over communities when a child is lost and never found or mm -hmm. you know in season one adrian mcnaughton you know chill mm -hmm. just mm -hmm. people don't even know why they're not letting their kids go you know go too far away anymore or why the park is closed now or you know that these little things start to creep into societies that where these things happen and and you don't even notice them right so there's this kind of cloying effect that happens when cases enter a community and, and can't be can't be solved or can't be mm. rectified in some way. Mm. So anyway, if, if, if I feel like that there's some good or some, I don't, I don't want to say good evil because I don't like those terms, uh, but I feel like there's some increment of forward progress or change that's mm -hmm. being done, then I'm happy. And people tell me, and I, I always want to know about that too. So I ask, is this helpful? And sometimes people don't know. You can't know if it's helpful. Like, I don't know if I'm being affected by it kind of question, right? It's like, are you being affected by it? Well, how do they know? They'll mm -hmm. only know three years down the road, but I still try to check in on that um, mm -hmm. to sort of see. And family often just come to me unasked and say, that really was amazing. Now I can talk about Angel mm -hmm. Carlick, for example, mm -hmm. without breaking down. Or now I have accepted that she's gone. And, you know, those are big statements right those are big statements and if i can get someone there then why not why not do that instead of fucking work for mcdonald's or you know make some uh movie or whatever i mean you probably you may get there by serving up a big mac or you may get there by making a movie but this is how i do it hi i'm jesse crookshank I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. That's something that I feel like is has come across to me as a, a listener. I know Jared, like when you were saying you you turn it on and it feels like almost like heavy listening mm -hmm. to it. I feel that and I think that that's what I've been attracted to about listening to um David, you talk about like listening to your show is is hearing these people like we oftentimes talk on Sick Boy about the importance of talking about, you know, these these hard things that you go through. Like I'm a huge um advocate of going to therapy and um, I was speaking to a, a therapist who I play soccer with the other night, and he was talking about group therapy and the power of mm. having people come together. And, you know, oftentimes in therapy, people don't know what to say. But if you're in a group therapy session, you see somebody else talk about how they feel in a way that you connect with. Then all of a sudden you have this like 
new door that you can open up and, yeah. and walk through and explore. I mean, David unlocked own. that shit in high school. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, that's what <laughs> that's I was, that's that's what I was thinking <laughs> when he was talking about that. Yeah. And, uh, and, and that came, a, that, that's been really coming across to me in the, in this season about Angel Carlick and listening to, you know, you, um, talk to her brother and how like the whole family shows up or a friend group shows up to like sort of support each other. And, and I was wondering if you felt that, that like sometimes going to these places with these people is the catalyst for them sort of unlocking a new way to understand the hard feelings that they're going through. Yeah. And like grief and to grieve, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, totally. It, it, I'm, I'm, I, I suspect that there is, that it is, you know, SKS does do that kind of thing and that I facilitate that kind of thing. I don't want to be some kind of savior complex guy and think no. that somehow I'm uh ta-da, here I am, white guy about to, uh, you know, surprise you into how to heal your heal thine self, young mm-hmm. man, and things like that. But, you know, people do it, the, people do it the work themselves, right? Like, it's not, I don't sit there and hold their hand all the way through things. And it's still, the trauma is broad, the trauma is real. And the things that they have gone through that I work, the people that I've gone through that I work with, you know, I can't, pretend to comprehend the depths of that although you know i've also everyone's got goes through trauma. everyone loses people everybody has you know uh, health scares everybody has has these sort of called come come to jesus moments where it's like uh you've got to find a way out of that but i do feel that the facilitation of it creating the luck for these cases to enter into the spaces for people to talk into uh it, it has had a positive or at least a forward moving change aspect in people's lives and it allows them to move forward uh it actually you know and, and productive productively it hasn't assisted investigations too so you know but, all, but all that together is a good thing for for you like what 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 have you learned from that experience about yourself hmm I don't know. That's the kind of thing you have to ask somebody else about, I think. I mean, I, I don't know that anybody can ever really know why they do things or what they're supposed to do, uh, actually. I think we're just kind of telling stories to help connect the moments where we actually do the things we have to do, like eat and sleep, you know? So, Do, do you go to therapy? <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't. I, I kind of, therapy is my work. So, right. and, and the family members are my therapists and we, they help each other. And and that's maybe part of the part of the point here. The reason the reason why I asked the question though is because I I kind of like push back on that idea of the the stories. Sometimes the stories like we just tell ourselves these stories to make sense of of these things. Because I find that like going from my experience going to therapy, I understand where those stories come from about myself. So like uh, I may have told myself a story before, but I didn't know where that where that actual story came from and shining a light on that and understanding that has, has made a really positive impact on my life because sometimes the story that I tell myself isn't true. And I only find that out through, you know, figuring out where that story came from to begin with. But you have to have somebody to talk to about that, to tell you about that back to you, don't you? Right. So that's what I'm saying. You have to have someone else tell you sometimes. That's what I'm, that's where I'm going. So, so my version of that is, you know, just instead of the therapist, it's the family. 
who often have no problem telling me who I am. <laughs> and from the beginning to the end, that process may change. Uh, one family member I spoke to wanted to break my arm when I first approached her and said, are you interested in this? Mm. And then nine months later, she didn't. And we were working together and we're, we've got an amazing relationship now. So, you know, and that, that, that was a process, right? So just like therapy is a process and for some it's a lifelong process as it probably should be for everybody. Yeah. Um, it, it changes, right? That that relationship changes over time. And I, th- I think that's a very, <laughs> I think that's a very interesting way of of uh, of sort of using as a bit of like a weather vane for for yourself in terms of like meeting somebody, meeting somebody that that in the beginning has you know every reason based on probably preconceived notions of why they should be like hostile towards you or treat you in a certain way. And then through, and then through time and conversation sort of gives you like, it's kind of like reflects a mirror back at you as to like how they end up treating you over time, you know, given enough conversation, what is that? What, what are they sort of like reflecting back at you and in the way that they treat you over that span of time, like where you eventually get to, to sort of go like, Oh, like this is kind of, I'm now kind of seeing the person that I am mm. by the fact that this person has has gone in this direction. They they've started treating me this way. They started here and now they're there. Mm. So that that obviously means something. Um, yeah, I'm just I thought that, that that's an interesting way to think about that. So something that I'm just like, if if it's okay to like kind of peel the curtain back a little bit, I, I'm curious about how how what is the process of deciding which case to follow. Um, uh, you know, as, as the show evolves and, and, you know, a new season approaches, like what, what do you, what, what is that process? How do you, how do you find these cases? That's a, that's the number one question I'm asked by the way. So, uh, and I have a pretty prepared answer for it usually. Um, I mean, there's a lot of processes that go into it and I can only, you know, point to certain highlights of the process. Obviously there's probably some personal input that I can't enumerate, uh, mm. about gut, you know, that's the gut feeling or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but generally, you know, I'm offered uh, to work on many cases, many, many family members, friends, or just sort of onlookers send me cases. So we've looked at hundreds, thousands of cases. And each year I'm sent hundreds or thousands of cases. Mm-hmm. Um, so this ranges from full packages of information that come with like every single piece of uh, information the person has dvds excuse me dvds filled with you know information good or bad good or otherwise investigative things from the media uh and, and pictures of the person all the way to just a single sentence from a family member please help me mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like in an email and it's like okay so those ones interest me almost as much as the giant packages right right yeah um because often the giant packages were sent to about 50 people right and those are interesting too like i i love looking at cases where everyone's taken a crack right like carrie brown a lot of people took a crack at carrie brown and i still find that i'm able to pull out information that's not been in every episode we put in information that has never been heard before mm. um so that i pride myself on that um but in terms of we call it pillars i well we we've started to call it pillars in the group of things that are in cases so one of the main pillars family members they're a family member passionate family member 
who is really interested in working on the case and really interested in working on the process that SKS takes them through. So mm. we make sure of that, uh, often without even contacting them. Uh, because as soon as I, I find that as soon as I start to contact people, the snowball starts and I'm into the case, right? Yeah, so, yeah. so because I'm not going to ever make somebody think I'm working on it. And I, oh, sorry, <laughs> we got a more interesting one over here, you know? So, so I have to be very careful before I make that first call because often the first call turns into episode one. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Right. So, so that, you know, there's a lot of groundwork. So we look for a passionate family member. We look for viable suspects. We look for people that have been mentioned, but then forgotten about and sort of early mentions. Like there's often, you know, some direction that's pointed to by an early report or a reporter. Maybe the police revealed some holdback that never got carried through a certain right through certain articles. You can find stuff like that in cases. Mm-hmm. And if the family member has been reporting them on, on on viable suspects or suspicions that have never been looked into, that's interesting. Um, gives us a place to look. Gives us a you know some sort of names to start thinking about and mulling over um, mm-hmm. research points. Uh, next pillar would be uh, law enforcement. Is there a law enforcement person, agency, retired officer with a pigeon be shitted box in his barn covered? in cobwebs that has a case file in it, willing to hand it over. And often there is, I just described an actual situation there. Um, (laughs) In a case I've worked on, pigeon beshitted box filled with information, um, handed to me by an old officer, Mm. still alive actually. Anyways, yeah, I mean, is is there law enforcement and are they willing to talk? And is it just media flack talking to me or do I get access to the officer? Does the officer actually want to help or is it just mm. this, the anniversary is coming up and we wanted to, the police department in our media said it would be a good idea to partner with you to, on that day, put out your podcast. It's like, well, no, it's not how it works, guys. It's not just an anniversary podcast. We're not just going to say, remember mm. this mm-hmm. time last year, another anniversary doc came out about this murder 10 years ago. You know, it's, those aren't the way I work. So you have to kind of suss that out. Is it just a media flack? notion that's being entertained here or are they mm. actually interested in working with me so often you'll hear uh in my podcasts and sks that we do have officers that are helping and there we do have a ton of them sometimes uh the police departments choose not to uh operate in alongside me or in any way near me and that's of interest too sometimes when they're not interested at all that's an indicator of something mm. that makes me interested. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> so right, right. it's kind of like the sort of milk toast in between that makes me uninterested. It's either full on or full off. And then I'm, whoa, there's something interesting there. I don't know what that says about me. but um, <laughs> And then just in terms of what's been done before, uh, what's the geography? Um, where is it? What's the universe of the case? What's the atmosphere we'll be hearing? Those are minor issues. What's the, you know, who? what's the victimology? You know, is it all... Mm-hmm white young white girls or is it you know is there a guy or is there you know people of color or you know is what what's going what's what's Mm -hmm. the victimology those are all things that cbc you know puts puts targets when it looks at cases right and that we look at and very carefully and and how like that process you know i mean it sounds very dialed in but i'm imagining that from season one to season eight that's sort of evolved like in the early stages was it like this you know with season one i know that there's a there's a direct tie into um you know where you grew up um how like has it evolved much over the last eight seasons or i I mean we've we collect a lot of cases and often we find 
that we're still looking at cases that we had in the pile back in the early days. So we, like these cases haven't gone away and they're still there and something mm -hmm. may come up from it or like uh, Angel Carlick's case was there with the original ones I started working on for CBC TV. And it just, right. I could not get to it. I could not get the time for that case being in the Yukon, the way things were working. Um, and that, and other cases too, that's just an example, but uh, no, I mean, it, the, the process has been fairly similar. I mean, working with Thomas Moore in Mississippi, uh, from that process, that was a that's a that's an aunt that's still going that case. I mean, we have a Klansman in jail, died in jail. The other Klansman's dead. Uh, there was reconciliation, and I'm still working with Thomas. We're we're like he. I talk Ooh. to him every couple of weeks. Um, that was like 2004 that started. Um, so so it's that case really was the touchstone for all of the th and it has all the things it has. Old reporters willing to help with their files, hand it over to me, FBI files, some FBI willing to help, a U.S. attorney who pulled a lot of switches, uh, Washington Department of Justice was interested in helping. I'm still in touch with Paige wow. Fitzgerald, who used to run the Civil Rights Division at Department of Justice. We're still in touch. Uh, I ask her advice all the time. Uh, and this willing a really passionate family member who had never properly been able to look back at the case despite Connie Chung and ABC's best efforts uh who you know they basically drove him down in a in a limousine to the graveyard and stood him up beside Charles Moore's grave and said how do you feel and flew him home and that was his involvement in the case right get some tears get the family member down there give him a hotel and some McDonald's send him home and that just makes me barf right I just want to puke um so anyway from that point on, uh, back in 2004, eh, it's pretty much been dialed the way you heard yeah, it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> David, how do you grapple, how do you grapple with, um, the, the idea of the idea of, of, of justice and, and, and in the process of like opening up, like you said, like you don't want to reach out to a family. You don't want to reach out to somebody and then pull the curtain and uh, pull, pull the rug out from under them. You know, you, you like, if you're going to make that call, it's probably because you're, you're going to go, you're going to dive into this. How do you grapple with the with a, a sense of responsibility or a sense of justice that maybe like a family feels like because you're looking into this, like there's this, there might be like a renewed hope of finding justice or finding answers and how that can sometimes play out in you know in a positive way and, and sometimes in a negative way like how do you how do you kind of view that i'm pretty harsh when it comes to expectation management uh when i'm talking to family members so i will underplay uh what could happen with the case uh and i'm often will try to dispel a lot of the mythologies around cases first, because there's always rumor. Rumor control is a big part of the job. And you'll hear in the podcast some of the biggest rumors I try to dispel because it's important to the case for people mm -hmm. to move on and get away from all this, you know, the buzzsaw, the guy with the buzzsaw or the wood chipper did it stuff. Um, and often family members can become, become infected, and I say infected, with it because, especially now with you know, so much interest in true crime, everyone thinks they know exactly what happened. And there's a lot of weird conspiracy stuff and psychic shit going on, which really can, can derail family members for life. Totally. Right. Yeah. And so I have to go in and try to, 
and this I'm imposing my belief. I mean, I don't believe in psychics, but fuck, maybe they do, and maybe that helps them. But I I tell them that I don't. I'm not going in and saying this is really stupid, and you're stupid, and this is all stupid. Only I can, you know, I'm the all-seeing owl man of Mount Parnassus or whatever. Uh, I don't do that, but I do manage with what I'm bringing to the case. I'll manage you know, what, what to do. I also won't tell family members everything I'm hearing, right? It's like, oh, well, this guy said that he heard mm, a puppet mm. did it. You know, this guy's, <laughs> this guy said that uh, his wife might've done it, but she's dead and she's buried under the house. You know, like I don't, and people have tell me shit like that. I don't go back and just whisper in the ear and try to mm. drive them nuttier. Right. Obviously. Mm. So obviously, you know, I have to control my information flow to the family member. They know that though. It's not like, David's keeping shit from me. He's, mm -hmm. we talk about it and it's like, I'm not going to tell you everything uh, because a lot, most of it isn't relevant. And when it is relevant, I'll tell you when I think it's relevant, mm. you know, and if I don't know, then I'll talk about them, talk about yeah. it with them. You know, like it's just a, it's an honesty position, right? It's a position of honesty and not pretending I know everything. Right. Yeah. It, it's a very uh, interesting, like it's, it, it really strikes me in this, especially in this last, like, I, I, I don't know. I, in my mind, in my mind, true crime went like, like hockey stick J curve around the time that serial came out in, in my, at least like in the public sort of thing that, that I view it. And, and I find it fascinating to think like there are people out there that have done shit that are not, that have not been held accountable for what they've done. And now there's this like world of people who are like, well, we're coming for you. <laughs> like we're going to find out like that's a that's a fascinating new angle to add to the dynamic of having done something horrible that you haven't been held to account for yet man but but i think about all the problems that that causes too like the like the armchair totally. experts and yeah. like yeah. like like to the point that david's making about like put pouring gas on the rumor. I mean, you fires. see that you see that shit on Reddit like all the time. That's yeah, exactly right. that's what I was right. Thinking. Does it does it just end up making it harder for people who are doing you know police work and like genuine investigative work? Yeah. Does it make their it, job harder to just pile on all the shit, all the rumor? It can, and 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 it's the the sort of tenacity of the people that want to. Uh, put themselves at the center of cases when they often have no business doing so. The tenacity of the ideas that they have, it's unbelievable. So, for example, in the Melanie Etier case uh, that I did for the next call, uh, we revealed I'm, what I'm pretty sure happened in the case. And before this, there were, there's been a number of rumors that we tried to dispel in the case or that we avoid because they're just, they don't make sense. Uh, we put out in the episodes, the theory that I think happened. And I, th the people that put out the alternate theories accepted it, but they grafted mine or SKS or uh, the next calls onto theirs. Whoa. So then it, it's sort of like, yeah, let's take this part. Yeah, she was taken from the bridge. It was this guy, probably because he admitted doing it. He had scratches on his arm, etc. But then all this other stuff still happened. Like all these other guys came into play and it still happened mm -hmm. the way we said it did. Oh <laughs> like it's so they, so they're able to take the you know the research and the investigation and and just graft it on to whatever they happen to believe mm. at the time and mm. often it comes from a psychic you know or something like a yeah. lot of the stuff is yeah. coming from guys listening to like radio waves through their mi microwave <laughs> oven kind of thing right like i am dead serious if yeah. you look at that yeah. melanie ethia case there is a dude that does that and people he has a massive following and they all believe what he's saying 
Mm-hmm. And it's like, you are ruining the lives of the people connected to this case yeah. that are closest to this case. You are ruining their lives. And uh, I purposely didn't mention any of this in the podcast because it just energizes it. Right. Mm, sure. sure. So. The the thing that I I feel really comes across, um, David, in, in your show is like, is how much um, you care and how how little the this is sensationalized and how important it is to talk about these cases in the very real way that they affect the mm. and and the, the the real way that they affect the families involved and friends and communities. Um, I am curious about your experience to sort of like turn the question that Taylor just asked and, and, and point it more um, at you, you know, a lot of these cases don't have conclusions and I'm curious as a person um, who is, you know, spending all this time to try to get to the ultimate answer of what happened um, when you don't have that answer, does that, does that eat at you over time? No, because I think it's idiotic to expect that I have the answer. Uh, I think I think it's it's um, especially idiotic in a short period of time. I think mm-hmm. that those those allegations, which I think they're allegations, that you did it, you did a case and nothing happened. What? Why are you doing this? Why are you dragging those people through that? I mean, cases take a long time, and mm-hmm. and often it'll take you know, let's say, uh, let's which case am I going to talk about here? In Hanover, uh, for example, there was a guy who confessed to killing someone, the case fell through, and then it was thrown out, of, thrown out of court because the police made some errors. Then I got on the scene and publicized. And many months later, not right after the podcast, many months later, the police started a Mr. Big operation on the guy. And they got him again to confess. And this time, they took him to court, and he's in jail now. Um, and it took a long time. It was like, Arrest in 2013, I think jail by 2017. So I get people on episode two saying nothing's happening here, right? <laughs> Second week in, David, and then and I get people, when's your next case? After the last episode, David, when's your next case? Like, <laughs> it takes me years, guys. Yeah, it takes yeah. me months, years. Yeah. I'm one guy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So and and okay. So that's a measure of courtroom justice. It takes a while for things mm-hmm. to happen. Police have to listen. You know, people have to talk. You're trying to get people to talk about cases. It takes a while for people to come forward and decide. Yeah, maybe I should say my brother did it. Um, mm-hmm. Things like that. But the other measure is what I was talking about before: is like, are people that are involved in the case or closest to the case? How is it affecting them? And I would say the answer is a much more shorter term answer. And within months or maybe a year, they're able to say this helped, right? Mm-hmm. And um, mm. that's what I go on. So it's hard to hear people ask, "How come nothing happened after episode six is over or something?" Right, episode yeah, seven, yeah. but not. But they say nothing. But what do you mean nothing? It's every episode revealed stuff that hasn't been talked about ever before. Right, this mm-hmm. guy has never been looked at before by police. What do you mean nothing happened? <laughs> like mm-hmm. it's now. It takes time to go over that. Right, mm-hmm. it takes responsible law enforcement time to look into that. Mm-hmm. So, and then Carrie Brown's case, I know they're looking at familial DNA, and I know they're looking in the directions that we mentioned in the podcast. So that takes 10 years sometimes, that stuff, right? So buckle up, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is different than than what people expect often. Uh, sometimes maybe things can be solved quickly. But, mm-hmm. uh, but it is one of those questions or insinuations or inferences that kind of 
I don't I don't get enough time to explain or talk about. So I'm appreciative that you made that space. Da- David, I want to say like, thank you. Thank you for thank you for giving us a little a little bit of um, uh, of an opportunity to kind of to to peek into the personal side of what it what it takes to, you know, dig so deep into these cases. Um, it, it's I mean, it you, you lead a fascinating life and and uh, and. Yeah, we, we just we just want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to sit down with us and, and allow us to 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 kind of pry uh, into your the personal side of this. Um, folks, uh, someone knows something. Season eight is currently available right now. Highly suggest you go check it out. David, how can people, you know, aside from going to listen to the podcast, like how can people stay up to date with the work that you're you're doing? Uh, well, Geez, I guess the internet searching on the Google internets. Uh, Ridgenfilm.com is pretty much up to date now. That's my f- website that shows my films and podcasts and everything else I've done to date. Um, uh, cbc.ca slash SKS is where you'll get everything from SKS. Um, so that that's about it. I mean, just search on my name if you're interested. What's really funny, guys, is that if you type David Ridgen into the search engine, the next one is wife. David Ridgen wife. <laughs> right? I, Dude, yeah, yeah. that. What the hell? Yeah. What does that, that mean? That, you know why? Because people get interested in somebody and then they, they go, want to know everything. They go, I wonder what they're. David, David, David Ridgen David Rich income worth. <laughs> net worth. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Net worth. Yeah, yeah. If you search my net worth, guys, I'm crushing it. Are you? <laughs> yeah, apparently. <laughs> Are they close? My, my fucking bank account wouldn't say the same, but. What, uh, do they think, what, what do they think your net worth is? Like, it's like six mil. Something like that? Nah, it's not. It's not. No. It's not, though. It ain't. <laughs> Guys, I'm a podcaster. I don't think you get it. David, thanks, man. This has been, uh, this has been yeah, a real thanks, treat. Dude. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sick Boy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.